I might be the only one here this morning who's had this experience, but I actually doubt it. I remember very clearly my grandfather. We called him Grandpa. I had one grandpa and grandma. The other set of grandparents were Nana and Poppy. Uh, But I remember Grandpa, my mom's dad, telling me, and totally believing it, one of these days, the leaders of this country will get everything figured out and things will truly be better. He believed it. Times of remembrance that also in many ways elicited hope. But sadly, my experience is is that that was a false hope because things are not better. In most ways, they're worse. So let me ask you, have you ever had that feeling that something just wasn't right? Think about it in terms of our text that we're studying and our text for today, in terms of Zechariah and those who had returned to Jerusalem. The exile was supposed to be over. The 70 years of predicted exile, the length of the discipline, had come to an end. And they had returned to Jerusalem. They had started rebuilding the temple. But they really weren't feeling the presence of God. Opposition reared its ugly head. Both external opposition from the Samaritans and internal opposition. And so Zechariah is given a series of eight night visions in which as I shared last Sunday, you get an ongoing sensation that things are just not right. So far as we've seen... uh, The first six verses contained a report of the reception of the word of the Lord by the prophet Zechariah. And then we jumped right into the first major section, chapters 1 to 6. And in that, it reports eight prophetic visions that came in one night to Zechariah. You know, I'm tempted from now on when somebody tells me, Oh man, I had a bad night, I just couldn't sleep. I'm tempted to say, hey, go read the book of Zechariah, the first six chapters. Here's a man who had not one dream, not two dreams, but eight visions that night. One night. And even though the visions, which I think are pretty unforgettable forgettable and, and kind of surreal, even though they come in the midst of a tough time. We're going to see how they also provided hope for Zechariah's audience. And I think the reason for that is because, like my friends Mark Halen and Clay Ham have written in their commentary, what we see in the visions is that their troubling circumstances are now seen as a part of a larger picture. 
They are placed, in their words, in a cosmic and supra-historical perspective. I shared with you last Sunday how the fourth and the fifth vision provide the theological focus. And one thing I emphasized was that this focus was reinforced by means of a chiastic structure. Vision 1 and Vision 8 about the patrol that's going on in the earth. Visions 2 and 3 and 6 and 7 about how there is retribution and protection and evil gets retribution and Jerusalem gets protection, is purified. But right in the center are these two visions talking about the high priest being reinstated and about how there are divine resources that are available. These two visions form the focal point of the structure of the, the visions. But I think there's another point of interest or emphasis. And I believe it. we need to, to take note that it's only in the fourth and the fifth vision that unique among the eight visions, they're the only two that contain actually known and identifiable characters. Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua, the religious leader, and Zerubbabel, the political ruler or leader. Now, hopefully, this is just review. But the first three visions... They had to do with God's program in terms of the establishment of Jerusalem as the center of God's glory on earth. <coughs> the restructuring. The rebuilding. It was going to be filled and overflowing, we were told, with a people living in peace and security. The peace and security of God's presence. Gentile dominion, oppression, those were to be removed. You see, visions 1 to 3 were about God's work on behalf of His people. But last Sunday as we looked at the fourth vision, the focus changed to God's ministry within the people themselves. So we saw last Sunday how God would cleanse them. How he would make them fit to, for him to enter into their presence, to indwell, and also for them to enter into his presence. So here's my question to set the stage for today's message. In terms of turmoil, times of doubt, where do you find encouragement? In those times when things are going tough, where do you find strength? You see, too often, and I am very guilty of this, my wife will tell you, too often we try to rely on our own circumstances and our own resources. We think about what reserves we might have on hand. Jesse had a, a tooth go bad again. And we had to go up 
the week before and get the initial stuff started and we got to go back up this week we don't have dental insurance and so I had to think in terms of okay how can I move things about and what resources do we have because as many of you know crowns are just not cheap she had to have a root canal and now she has to have a crown and, and you start to think, okay, what can I do? Uh, who do I know that somehow, uh, what kind of links do I have? How can I get this problem settled? We do everything that we can to figure out how we can solve our own problem. Except, and I don't say this as an easy cliche, in fact, this is going to be one of our themes for the summer at camp. We're going to have little wash-on tattoos made up that say, let go. And then there's going to be a, cat, a big letter D, or a big, big word then in red for let God. Let go. And let God. One of the verses of this fourth chapter that I think you'll probably realize sounds very familiar as we move into the text is verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now think about that as we look into the text for today. And the angel who talked with me came again and I know it says woke. But listen. And the angel of the Lord, the angel who talked with me came again and roused me like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a, a lampstand all gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it. One on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. 
Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are the two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. May God add his blessing to our reading of the word this morning. In terms of takeaways from this passage, I think that the first thing we need to see is how Zechariah needed to be roused to a new vision. Sometimes we just don't have the right perspective. Have you ever been there? Oh, you think you see things in one way, but then all of a sudden somebody says, well, wait a minute. Look at it from this perspective. And you begin to realize that your perspective of the situation, your perspective of the problem, your perspective of whatever it might be, was limited because of what my mentor, uh, one of my first very dear mentors, who Eric is named after, Dr. Eric Charles Rust, not Latimer, but he used to, he was from Oxford. The only one that could ever pronounce my name right. Oh, we have a Chauncey, he said the first day, because it's a British name. He used to talk about the bullocks. That's a British word for the blinders that you would put on horses. And he would say, we all have them. And they limit our perspective. And the best that we can hope for is that we are able to widen our bullocks. This was brought home over the last couple of years as Eric and I would talk about different things and he would say, you know, Dad, I never stopped to think about that because growing up, we grow, grew up in the church, we grew up under Grandpa and your ministry, so we grew up under the teaching of the Restoration Movement, the Christian Churches and Churches of Christ, and I never realized that there were others who were seeing this side of an issue differently. The task before Zerubbabel and his associates must have seemed insurmountable, especially in view of God's descriptions of how the coming glory of Jerusalem uh, and the temple would take place. And so this fifth vision is given to Zechariah in order to show Zerubbabel that God does assist, that he empowers He facilitates those whom He has chosen to do the work that He has ordained. Again, in their commentary, Mark and Clay have pointed out how most versions imply that the prophet had been sleeping. And that's why I stopped and made the change. The way that happens is, and and it's in our English Standard Version that that I'm using right now as well. They do it by translating the Hebrew verb er with forms of words for wake. Our text, and he woke me. 
However, this causes us to miss a major emphasis in the text. In 19 other uses of that Hebrew verb in the Old Testament, its primary designation is not waking somebody up from the sleep, but it is in inciting or arousing someone to take action. Moreover, the use of the same verb in the comparison. The text read, and woke me as a man is awakened from the sleep. That would be redundant. If the intent was not to indicate that arousing to a higher state of receptivity, a prophetic receptivity is intended, that rather than just a physical awakening. You see, that kind of consciousness, arousal, is fitting for what is taking place in terms of the message. Up to this point, Zechariah has been asking the questions. Where are you going? What does this mean? But now Zechariah needs to be focused. Now it's the angel who asks Zechariah, what do you see? Come on. Come on. I know you're awake, but focus. What do you see? And so he tells us, which is the what of the passage that we've been looking at. A golden lampstand. Now, the exact appearance, which is, is not known, the two olive trees on either side of it, the lamp appears to be in a form that was known in the post-exilic period, uh, and very possibly the lamp was designed as a combination of the candle that was in the original temple that had been destroyed, as well as this vision of Zechariah. But you can read about it in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 21, a passage that's describing how Antiochus Epiphanes returned from Egypt. And when he did, he went up to Israel and to Jerusalem, and that passage says he arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. The two olive trees standing on either side of the bowl upon the lampstand, figure into the vision as providing an unlimited supply of oil for the lamps. And so Zechariah asks, What are these, my Lord? Again, it's really unclear whether the question refers to the olive trees, the lamp, or both. If the question is about the trees, then the answer is delayed until verse 14. If, however, the question is about the lamp, then the angel begins to answer that question. You see, if not one or the other, the fact that the plural use of these indicates the prophet is asking about both components of the vision and the angel's question, do you not know what these are? It's not intended to highlight the ignorance of Zechariah, no. It's to help Zechariah understand that he needs supernatural insight to understand what he's seeing. Rhetorically, 
it serves as a device to heighten the expectation. Come on. Come on, Zechariah. Get yourself ready. The delay. The pause. I found at church camp over the years that I can sometimes just shut up and get the attention of the group better than I can by continuing talking. A pause. Yet the angel doesn't appear to answer Zachariah's question. But instead, he delivers a message encouraging Zerubbabel to complete the rebuilding of the temple. And so we, along with Zechariah, should be revived by the unusual response that is given. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the question of Zechariah is still not answered directly. Instead, we're told that the word of the Lord has come to Zerubbabel. And the message turns things upside down. The word rendered might denotes power that may be demonstrated in physical strength or ability, wealth, or even an army. You can find that word used that way throughout the Old Testament. And paired with that word might is a word power, a noun that basically means the same thing. And those two words together, might and power, are used a few times together in other places in the Old Testament. Again, where the assertion is that there are many things that cannot be accomplished by human strength that can only be accomplished by God. In Zechariah's case, it has to do with the rebuilding of the temple. Its completion will only come about through the power of the Spirit working in the situation. And the way the verse is written, it's a proclamation that the Word of the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is stressing the contrast between human and divine strength. What's the Bible say about pride? Take care if you think you stand. This is what's going to happen. You're going to fall. Don't think you can solve it on your own. I, I hope I've shared this with you before in what's closing in on five years now. Do you know that the word Christian very, very seldom occurs in the singular. It's the Christians. It's the Christians. It's the called out ones, plural. It's the church. You are not an island. You are not an individual in God's sight. You are a part of a corporate body, the church. 
And the moment you start thinking, I mean myself and I, you have put yourself in harm's way. You've put yourself out there for the temptation of the devil. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about us. Not just us in this room, not just us in this county, but us as the people of God. The task is going to be completed. But not by anything that Zerubbabel, nor any other human, for that matter, can accomplish. Zechariah's contemporary Haggai was also emphasizing the same message. That God's presence and power would make sure that they would, that they would succeed in the reconstruction of the temple. And in Haggai's words, words of comfort and assurance, Haggai chapter 2 verse 5, My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I've tried to make that my primary message the last two years. Don't be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. God's with us. There's nothing stronger or greater than, than, than God. And if by chance death should come, the one who dies is the better off. Now I know there are grieving family members left behind. But man, to die today and to be in the presence of the Lord, I can't think of anything better. That's even better than homemade fried chicken. So the chapter begins to conclude with the characters being rejuvenated with a new hope. Or at least they should have been rejuvenated. The second word that comes to Zerubbabel puts the same message in plain terms. Zerubbabel will certainly finish the work. The fulfillment of the prophecy will provide further vindication of Zechariah's authority. And Zechariah, like Haggai, implies that, yes, the realists were pessimistic pessimistic about the building project. I, I've got to deal with realists every day in my role as the manager at the church camp. But I'll tell you what, Tuesday night it was a blessing. Monday night, first of all, and then Tuesday night it was a blessing to tell that group that we have already, without a lot of emphasis, without a lot of programs, we have already raised over $9,600 for the new pool. We're going to do it. Not by my abilities, not by anybody else's abilities. We're going to do it because it's something that can be used in a mighty way for the ministry at the camp reaching out. What a blessing to tell the board of directors that we have not one, but two weeks of camp reserved and rented before our camping season even begins. And what a blessing to go out the other day and meet with a young man 
who he and his wife are looking to rent the camp on more than one weekend from a Friday to a Sunday for men's retreats and women's retreats. God is good. And God will provide if we will just lay out before Him the fact that we're not worthy. We can't do it. And, and even in that building project, did you notice that Zechariah wrote that they were despising the day of small things? You know what I found out over the last year and a half? Small things add up to big rewards. Most of the days over the last year and a half, I walked two miles. I started building that to the point where I was walking 3.1 miles each day. You would have never convinced me a year ago August that by this point I would have walked over 1,700 miles. Nor would you have convinced me that I would have lost about 100 pounds. I had that as a goal. But those little things, those little, those days of small things, add up. Oh yeah, they wanted to succeed. They wanted a temple. They wanted Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But their faith was too small. One of the best books I have back in my library, you could read it in a matter of an hour and a half to two hours, even if you're a slow reader, is a book that's an old one. If I loan it to you, you've got to be very, very, very careful with it. But it's simply titled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. Start realizing who God is. You see, they would, they would actually be surprised into rejoicing. But think about the symbols that are used for just a moment. The stone. Actually, the capstone, the way it's described. Symbolizes the separate, the holy nature of the Jewish community. And the same stone is meant as in verse 7, a specially prepared stone set apart for a special place in the coping stones of the temple. The cause of rejoicing, therefore, is the placing of this last ceremonial stone, the crown of all their work on the height of the temple walls by Zerubbabel. But having delivered the word to Zerubbabel, the angel finally returns to the question put by Zacharias to the meaning of the vision. The seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord. But which seven? It seems probable that the reference is back in the fourth vision, chapter 3, verse 9. Thus leading to the translation such as, these seven are the springs of the Lord. They flow out of the earth. In this way, the two visions are interconnected with the hope of looking forward to a future renewal of God's people. A rejuvenation that comes in by means of a new hope. The seven springs would bring water of life first to God's people and then through them to the world. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? You 
are concerned about the well of this stone, I can bring you living water. You see, the question in verse 11 is repeated to, to make it more specific. Not just what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand, but what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out. The second time, a new detail is introduced. There is going to be oil supplying the lamps in the temple so that those lamps will never go out. So what's the meaning of the symbol? What about these two? Literally in Hebrew, two sons of oil. We use anointed ones. But you know what? Zerubbabel probably wasn't even anointed. He was able to be anointed. He was of the line of David. But that didn't probably really happen since they were under a foreign jurisdiction. You see, the lampstand represents not the Lord, but the witness of the temple and the Jewish community to the Lord. They were to be a light, a light to the Gentile nations. And that's our task. Didn't Jesus say that the city on a hill cannot be hid? If we are if we ask how such a thing could be with a people who had so recently returned from exile, the answer lies in the fact that there's a supply of oil coming from the anointed ones, those leaders, that would keep their lights burning. So here's my challenge for you today. I want you to take seriously the message of verse 6. In Revelation, Revelations, chapter 1, verse 20, the seven golden lampstands represent seven churches. Just as Zechariah's lamp stood for the worshiping community of the post-exilic community. Ultimately, the Lord, the only true light, is the Lord Himself. I am the light of the world. Jesus said in John 8.12. Not that fancy candle. I'm the light of the world. But He saw fit to give the light to the world through the church, both of the Old Testament, them being the light to the Gentiles, and in the New Testament, to us. And the key verse of the whole passage proves to be that verse 6. Far from being separate from the vision, the oracle to Zerubbabel is indispensable to understanding it. The completion of God's kingdom is as certain as the completion of the temple. God's Spirit flows through His servants who wait on Him to turn the day of small things into a day of worldwide rejoicing. And we are that living, that living body of which Jesus is the living stone added to the structure of which Jesus Christ is Himself the, the chief cornerstone. Let me tell you how things work. And then I'm going to pray. Yesterday, 
I have a, a nephew that he and I are conversing as much, uh, almost as much as what Eric and I are conversing over theological issues and things. I, I'm thrilled for what I've seen in the growth of David. And yesterday, as I'm traveling, David sends me this text. Man, Ephesians 4, 18 to, or 2, 18 to 20. And I responded, yeah, Zechariah 4 and 5. And he went back and read Zechariah 4 and 5. And he said, yeah. And he quoted verse 6. And I said, my key verse for my sermon tomorrow. And he said, Uncle Chauncey, this isn't the first time this has happened between you and I, is it? And I said, no. He said, how is it that I am focused in on the same passage that you are getting ready to prepare a sermon for? And I said, it's quite simple. I know I don't have the ability. And so I pray each week for people like you, David, to be lifting me up in support by means of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this promise that when we get discouraged, when we are distraught, that you are there to empower us, but even more so, that all the way back when Zechariah is receiving these visions, you have been showing that your glory would return to the temple, not then, but 400 years later, when the true exile, the seven times the 70 would be over. And your son Jesus would return to Jerusalem and return to the temple bringing your glory. And that he would be that capstone by which your glory could enter into the temple which is our lives. Help us as we depart from here today to take your name with us to witness to spread the light to a world that is dark. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...